Section number 16 of Meller of the Silver Hand and Other Stories of the Bright Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Meller of the Silver Hand and Other Stories of the Bright Ages by David Byrne sheer pluck one if the world has an esteem for any particular virtue that virtue is fortitude under the name of pluck every man admires this quality and loves to see it in action it appeals to men of every class to the old as much as to the young to women as well as to men a lack of this virtue is peculiarly humiliating both to man and boy. Possession of it, in any uncommon degree, raises the individual to the rank of a hero. St. Thomas tells us that we may regard fortitude in two ways. One, as meaning of a certain firmness of mind and purpose. Two, as signifying firmness in the enduring and resisting of those difficulties in which it is hardest to have firmness. Fortitude, then, is a certain moral strength or courage, unyielding courage in the endurance of pain and adversity. With physical or structural strength it has nothing to do. The use of the Latin fortitude in connection with bodily strength is very rare. Its employment in English is the same sense, is said to be obsolete. As one of the four cardinal virtues, it is therefore strength or firmness of mind or soul which enables a person to do and to dare, to suffer and to endure without murmurs or complaint or depression. It is the foundation of, the source and basis of, all courage and bravery, of all patience in suffering, of all forbearance and magnanimity. In one word, it is manliness. The principal act of fortitude is endurance, says St. Thomas, and he defines endurance as the remaining steady and unflinching in dangers rather than attacking. Endurance is more difficult than taking the offensive, he tells us. To attack another supposes that we have the upper hand. If we are attacked, the opponent is probably the stronger. Again, endurance supposes a long time, but one may attack by a sudden movement. It is harder to remain long immovable than with a sudden motion to move forward to an arduous task. To prove that mere physical courage is vastly inferior to fortitude is unnecessary. The task will be like the flogging of a dead ass. Perhaps only a very small boy or a very foolish man has ever ventured to deny that the ruling of oneself is harder and braver thing than the taking of a strong city. Nevertheless, in the minds of many there is a lamentable tendency 
to confuse animal courage with moral bravery, and to prefer a spirit of mere brutal combativeness to that grand endurance of pain and suffering, which can alone raise a man to the rank of the truly heroic. Disgusted with lifelong reading of the lives of men who became less heroic the more he knew of them, Edward Fitzgerald exclaimed, I think there is but one hero, and that is the maker of heroes. We may applaud the sentiment even while we point out that if the incarnate God is the maker of heroes, those heroes have lived or are living. Know you not that the saints shall judge this world? asked St. Paul of the Cornithians, and he reminds the Thessalonians of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints, and again that he shall come to be glorified in his saints. There never was a saint who was not also a hero. But of how few of these heroes, so called, whose names are honored by the world, can we say that they were in any degree saintly? To set forth the lives of the saints of God merely as so many examples of fortitude, as so many models of pluck, would be an easy and grateful task, but it would scarcely give us a complete portrait of these true heroes of earth and heaven, for the topmost thing about them is their love of God above all things, their love of the neighbor for God's sake, self-love, the universal vice, selfishness in every form, self-interest, self-pity, self-complacency, self-conceit, self-seeking, self-enjoyment, self-pleasing, self-consciousness, self-exaltation, self-deceit, self-will, self-esteem, self-indulgence. Each and every one of these bad qualities was met and fought and done to death by the saints of God. They are saints just because they were not lovers of self. They were canonized not so much because of the external wonders they wrought, nor because of the miracles they performed, but precisely because they loved God and their neighbor in a degree that was in every sense of the word heroic. 2. Among the many early saints who are renowned for their courage, the young Simon Stylites is a magnificent example. Born in the year 390, he lived in Sisson, a little town in Cilicia on the borders of Syria. His father was a poor shepherd, and like Joseph and David, the boy looked after his father's sheep. One day in the depth of winter, when it was impossible to lead the sheep to pasture, the young Simon went to assist at the offices of the church. Whether he heard the Beatitudes read and commented upon the first time, we are not told, but it is certain that their meaning came home to him that day with great force. Blessed 
are they that mourn, blessed are the clean of heart. These in particular struck the thirteen-year-old boy and made him thoughtful. He could not be happy until he had asked a certain old man to expound the meaning of these moving words of Christ, and when he understood them he begged to be told how the promised blessedness could be obtained. Doubtless it was pointed out to him that every Christian had the choice of two roads, that of the precepts and that of the counsels. One was harder and narrower and more toilsome than the other, but it was safer and better for those who were called by God to enter upon it, and was for them the high road to happiness and to perfection. Then Simon began to pray, and his prayer was not hurried recital of an Our Father or Hail Mary. He was brave and fearless, this young shepherd lad, and he was determined to listen to the voice of God. In secret he prayed as though life itself depended upon his prayer. Prostrate on the ground he implored God to guide and enlighten him. Exhausted, perhaps, by the length and vehemence of his prayer, he fell asleep, and in his sleep he was permitted to see a vision. The lad dreamed that he was digging, digging deeply for the foundations of a house. Toiling hard, he was compelled to stop now, and then in order to take a breath. Four times, he afterwards said, did he rest for an instant and each time he distinctly heard a voice calling to him and saying, Dig deeper. At length he was told to cease. The pit was deep enough for the foundation of whatever structure he cared to raise upon it. The event, says an ancient writer, verified the prediction. The afterlife of this wonderful loud was so superior to nature that it might well require the deepest possible foundation of humility and fever. Not far from his father's house there was a monastery under the care of a holy abbot named Timothy. Rising from sleep, Simon betook himself to the gate of this religious house. Though not the only way by which perfection may be reached, the boy knew that the monastic life was the best and readiest means of attaining such an end. Yet his humility did not permit him to ask for the religious habit, to be the drudge of the servants of the servants of God was his only aspiration at the time. For several days and nights he lay prostrate at the gate without taking either food or drink, begging that he might be admitted as the lowest of the hired servants of the abbot. His request was eventually granted, and for four months, with great fever and affection, he undertook the meanest offices of the abbey. It would almost appear that during these months he was regarded as a novice, at any rate as a postulant, for it is expressly said of him that he undertook the first task of a novice, not imposed in primitive times only, 
but still enjoined in some of the ancient religious orders the learning by heart of the 150 psalms of david what a precious possession for a young mind the entire psalter committed to memory every one of those priceless hymns ready to pass from mind to lips at any moment of the day or night in this monastery simon remained for two years ever advancing in love and humility and gaining the esteem and goodwill of his older religious brethren whether the boy monk now wished to place himself at a greater distance from home or parents or whether he wished to join a stricter community we are not told but at the age of fifteen simon passed to the monastery of helidorus an, an abbot of great sanctity who had passed sixty-two of the sixty-five years of his life in this community. It is now that the lad began that wonderful life of mortification which, in an age and in a part of the world where penance and fasting were very ordinary matter-of-fact occurrences, made Simon Stelites renowned. We must not forget who and what he was as a poor shepherd boy he had lived a simple open-air life and his food had always been the food of the poor doubtless his frame was a sturdy one and his constitution vigorous and healthy we know not what his particular reason may have been for eating but once a week we know nothing of his interior trials and temptations we know too that fasting is but a means to an end and that perfection does not consist in afflicting the body no one knew this better than simon himself but he loved god above all things and he wanted to prove his love let it be frankly admitted that at this time of his life he made mistakes but better than all the penances and fastings and mortifications was the obedience he showed to his superior. Helidorius forbade him to fast for so long a time, and Simon at once yielded, only, however, to fall into an indiscretion of another kind. 3. It may be that fierce temptations afflicted the pure soul of this growing boy, and that he was heroically determined to overcome them at any cost. Round and round his body, next to the skin, he bound a rough, thick, well-rope, made of the big, hard-twisted leaves of the psalm-tree. He did this unknown to his superior or to any of his brethren, that this instrument of penance caused him great suffering is certain. The rope began to eat into his flesh, and a terrible abscess was the result. A physician had to be called in to cut the cords. He was compelled to make incisions in the flesh, and these nearly cost the patient his life. For three days liquids had to be applied to soften the shreds of clothing that clung to the wound and it is said that for some time the boy lay as though he were dead. But he recovered, 
only to be dismissed from the monastery. Let this not be forgotten. Simon had erred, and the error cost him very dearly. His abbot regarded such conduct as a dangerous singularity, prejudicial to true religious discipline, and he would have none of it. And remember this, abbot was a man of singular holiness, and one who for many years had led a life of great mortification. It is not clear for how long a time Simon remained under the care of abbot Hilidorius, but at the time of his dismissal the saint was probably only a boy. Sadly wandering away from the monastery, he came in contact with a holy priest named Bassus, and at the foot of Mount Telnician, or Thelonicia, he began to lead the life of a hermit. The abbot Bassus, he had two hundred monks in his charge, became Simon's director. The boy was determined now to act only under obedience, and at the beginning of Lent, when he asked permission to abstain from all food and drink during the entire forty days, the abbot gave him ten loaves of bread and a supply of water, charging him to eat if he found it necessary. Coming to him at Easter with the most blessed sacrament, Bassus found the young hermit stretched upon the ground, apparently dead. The loaves and the water had not been touched. Reviving him a little by moistening his lips with a sponge, the priest gave him Holy Communion. A little later Simon broke his fast upon lettuce leaves and herbs. In this hermitage he spent three years, and then built for himself at the top of the mountain not a hut, not even a shed, but a sort of wall, a roofless screen that afforded him little or no shelter from the cold of the mountain top. Then lie. Then he had an iron ring riveted around his right leg and connected by a great chain to the rock upon which he lived. Among those who visited him at this time was Meltius, vicar of the Patriarch of Anatoch, who told him that a firm will and grace of God would keep him to his purpose without the wearing of a fetter. At once the obedient Simon sent for a smith and had the shackle removed. And now the saint's troubles began. Day after day the mountain was thronged with the crowds who came to him to be cured of their diseases, to listen to his exhortations, or to receive his blessing. The distraction caused by these visits to a man whose only longing was to be alone with God may be imagined. For the next thirty-seven years of his life he lived on pillars, beginning with a column of stones six cubits high. After four years he raised a second one of twelve cubits. Three years later he built another one, twenty-two cubits in height, and remained upon it for ten years. But for the last twenty years of his life he lived upon a pillar built for him by the people, a column that reached the height of forty cubits. Thus he was to be known in history as the Stellites, from the Greek stylos, 
a pillar. Tennyson's poem on the saint is known to all English-speaking readers. It is, in many respects, an exceedingly fine piece of verification, but it gives us an absurdly imperfect portrait of St. Simon. Like most Protestant readers, and perhaps a few unthinking Catholic ones, Lord Tennyson misses the secret of the hermit's sanctity and the leading characteristic of the saint's life. Some portions of the long soliloquy that the poet puts into Simon's mouth are impossible, yet the late laureate had evidently studied his subject with care and tried to treat it sympathetically. The refrain of this poetical monologue is indeed exactly what we might expect from a saint. Have mercy, Lord, and take away my sin. This was undoubtedly the burden of St. Simon's prayer. But a poet who could put the following into the mouth of Stylites proves that he read the lives of the saints to little purpose. O Jesus, if thou wilt not save my soul, who may be saved? Who is it may be saved? Who may be made a saint if I fail here? Nor would Simon in his prayer make a catalogue of the penances he had practiced since boyhood. For not alone this pillar punishment, not this alone I bore, but while I lived in this white convent down the valley there, for many weeks about my loins I wore the ropes that hauled the buckets from the well, twisted as tight as I could not the noose, and spoke not of it to a single soul, until the ulcer eating through my skin betrayed my secret penance, so that all my brethren marveled greatly more than this I bore, whereof, O God, thou knowest all. We have already pointed out that for this particular indiscretion the young monk was dismissed from his white convent, and we may be quite sure that afterwards he bitterly regretted the not speaking to a single soul of such self-inflicted punishment, even though he might be conscious of having had a good intention in the matter, he would certainly not look back upon it with complacency or offer to Almighty God a singularity that, for the time at least, deprived him of his vocation. Tennyson was a great poet, and there are some wonderful lines in his St. Simon Stylites, but the laureate's grasp of the principles of the Catholic faith and practice was always a very loose one. It can never be repeated too often that mortification is not in itself sanctity, that itself is not the quality that raises a man to the altars of the church. Sometimes it is a contributing cause to holiness of life. Sometimes it is the natural effect of an overpowering love of God. Such mortifications as these of the stylites are not only imitable, but they are not the actions that make him dear to the Catholic heart. That his penances were truly heroic, 
and that as an example of fortitude he is wonderful even among the saints may be granted but his claim upon our love and veneration comes precisely through his ready obedience his profound humility and his perfect charity bidden to descend from his pillar twice every day he preached to the people and his influence for good seems to have been almost unbounded not merely christians but pagans and barbarians crowded to hear him we read of an entire nation being converted to the faith through his sermons and miracles persians armenians and iberians made long pilgrimages to hear him emperors kings and queens came to consult him the empress eudoxia was rescued by him from the hearsay of eutychus the empire marcan came to him disguised as a poor pilgrim solitary as he was saint simon did not live for himself alone happy were they for whom he prayed and blessed was she who bore him for we are told by a disciple of his that after his mother's death the saint's prayers for her were most fervent ever regarding himself as the vilest of sinners and the outcast of the world his charity and sweetness to others had no limit he was always ready to submit himself to ecclesiastical authority and the fact that the patriarch of antonic and other prelates and priests were willing to mount the columns in order to give him holy communion shows that his manner of life was blessed by god and approved by the church he died in four hundred and fifty nine in the sixty-ninth year of his age End of section 16. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.